0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death in the United States and occurs mainly in older adults. While the five year survivability rate has improved, it's still below other cancers. However, people with lung cancer treated in early stages have a significantly higher survivability than people treated in later stages. Today, my guest is Dr. Eric Anderson, Director of Interventional Pulmonology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital and Professor of Clinical Medicine at Georgetown University. Dr. Anderson will talk about why lung cancer occurs primarily among older adults and discuss leading risk factors. He will also explain diagnosis and treatment modalities for lung cancer and how lifestyle changes can decrease incidence of this disease. So welcome, Dr. Anderson, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you, Cheryl. It's a privilege to be on the show.
0: Okay. Well, I want to hear from you about statistics about lung cancer It's a serious disease, and I think sometimes people don't know what they don't know. So help us understand more about what's going on with lung cancer.
1: Well, lung cancer is the beast of all the cancers out there. We know that there are 235,000 people in the United States this year who will get the disease, and 131,000 of those are going to die from the disease. The male-to-female ratio here is one-to-one. Women have caught up with men, and now it is a disease that is equal amongst both sexes. It is a common disease. We are seeing it in both black and white and also American Indians. American Indians have a very high incidence of this disease. It turns out amongst African Americans, men have it more than white men, and white women have more cases of lung cancer than black women. So there's certainly something different amongst the races here. More importantly is that lung cancer deaths continue to outnumber the number of cancer deaths from the other three major cancers combined. Breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer do not equal the number of cancer deaths from lung cancer in the United States each year. So this is an important disease that we need to be talking about. We should have a positive note to it. There is a slight improvement in the survival. For 40 years, the survival of lung cancer patients was only 15% at five years. And that number now is pushing 18 to 20% because of the newer treatments, which we're going to discuss, and because of the availability of lung cancer screening.
0: And why is lung cancer a disease that predominantly affects older adults?
1: Well, it does, in fact, affect patients who are older, most patients are over 65. The average age of a lung cancer patient is at least 70 to 74. Only a few patients are ever diagnosed with an age less than 45. There is one subset of patients that we do see who get this disease earlier, and that's patients with HIV who seem to get lung cancer about 20 years earlier than other patients. Um, We don't know exactly why it is that this goes on, but we do know exposures to the things we're going to talk about that make risk for lung cancer more. And as we get older, if people continue to smoke more and more years, more and more damage is done to the lungs and makes them more likely to develop it. So this truly is a disease of patients over 65 and not commonly seen in young patients.
0: And would you say, I mean, as you mentioned, we're going to talk about risk factors, but are there certain aging and physiological changes amongst older adults that might also affect the likelihood of, of older adults having lung cancer?
1: We know as we get older, our body does have random events that happen that develop cancer In lung cancer, it's really about exposures. And the longer we live, the more exposures we have to the things that predispose us to develop lung cancer, the more likely that we form a genetic mutation that may end up becoming a lung cancer. So we now have tests for over 100 mutations that we know genetically that cause lung cancer. Um, some of these we have drugs for, up to the eight or 10 of these now we have drugs that can target the mutations that cause lung cancer.
0: So let's talk about smoking. I mean, whenever we hear about lung cancer, we think of smoking. So I just want to make sure you are the expert on this. Is smoking the leading risk factor for lung cancer?
1: Absolutely. Smoking is the scourge of our country. It is what has caused us to have this huge problem with lung cancer. 80% of smoking um, is the cause for lung cancer. 5% of patients who are never smokers, but have exposure to secondhand exposure to cigarettes can cause lung cancer. And then there's about 15% of people who do not have any smoking history themselves and do not have smoking uh, relatives or people that are living with do develop lung cancer. And some of these we're finding are people who have a genetic predisposition to getting lung cancer. Um, Interestingly, historically, lung cancer was a disease that we hardly ever saw in medical schools. In the early 1900s, autopsies were done on lung cancer patients because they were interesting, hardly ever seen disease.
0: And what happened
1: in the early 1900s? Well, we had a World War I. And during that time as part of the rations given to our soldiers overseas, they included cigarettes. And with that, an idea to help calm the people at our front lines as they're anxious. They felt that cigarettes would calm them down. And of course, the result of starting cigarette exposures became addiction to nicotine. And these patients came back 20 years later and started having the big uptick in male cancer deaths from lung cancer in the mid to 1930s to 1940s. The 1960s were interesting too. Women were not supposed to be smoking because they didn't have any other exposures to cigarettes before this time. But in the 1960s with women's lib, there was an emphasis on skinny being sexy and weight loss being a key. The way you could accomplish that we found out was cigarettes. Cigarettes help you lose weight. And so marketing campaigns were geared at women to do as much smoking as possible. And guess what happened? By the mid-1980s, we started having lung cancer deaths surpass breast cancer deaths as the leading cause of death amongst women. So smoking is the cause of the majority of lung cancer, and the history proves
0: it a sobering thought just to, to hear you say that and uh, so unnecessary if we didn't smoke. So I, I, I also wanted to ask you, Dr. Anderson, um, because sometimes you also do hear about exposure to radon and asbestos as a cause for lung cancer and perhaps other carcinogens in the workplace. Is there a small percentage of cases that are um, caused by, by these possibilities?
1: Yes, we know that radon is the second leading cause of death from lung cancer in the United States. Radon is an inert gas. It's found in the soil around us. Um, So many people have a gas level that is above the legal limits. Um, They can be checked easily by checking a radon measurement of your basement to see how much is there. And there are companies that help to uh, modify your house to allow for the radon to be evacuated from underneath it to keep it from building up inside. So radon actually is an important gas to know about. Um, In most states now, it's required to have radon testing of your house before selling the house to someone else. Asbestos is an interesting disease because it was a very commonly used insulation material It is common amongst shipbuilders and brake fitters and people who did insulation work of all types. Uh, Asbestos fibers penetrate the lungs deeply into the lungs and cause a number of different medical problems, including lung fibrosis, fluid around the lungs, and unfortunately cause lung cancer and a special type of cancer in the chest called a mesothelioma. Um, asbestos is, an important thing to talk about because if you have significant asbestos exposure because of one of the jobs that we just talked about, your risk of developing lung cancer is magnified to at least tenfold higher chance of developing lung cancer than somebody who's never smoked. But the curious thing here is that if you smoke and you're a five times higher chance of getting lung cancer and you have exposure to asbestos, your risk of developing lung cancer is magnified upwards of 50 times higher chance of developing lung cancer. So if you have exposure to asbestos as a job occupation, minimizing your risk to it by wearing a mask. And nowadays, um, screening patients who have had significant asbestos exposure is critical, because these are truly our highest risk individuals. There is another carcinogen out there that we should think about. It's not very common in the mid-Atlantic, but uranium miners also have a similar type of exposure in the workplace that is multiplied when they smoke cigarettes to become a very high chance of developing lung cancer. The other group that we don't think of too often is actually patients exposed to radiation because of medical treatments. And this may have happened on a young patient who had Hodgkin's lymphoma and may have had radiation to treat the lymphoma when they were a teenager or or a young adult. And then 20 to 30 years later, they develop a lung cancer within the radiation field. So uh, medical radiation is not a dangerous thing in the short run, but it can lead to potentially causing lung cancers Um, even 20 and 30 years later.
0: And what about pollution? And I'm also going to expand upon that about uh, climate change. Are there uh, circumstances now that are occurring in in terms of pollution and, and climate change that are also increasing the likelihood of lung cancer? What are you seeing?
1: Well, we know that pollution appears to be a risk factor for lung cancer. It is a lot harder to prove causality between exposure to somebody has pollution because everybody's exposed to it. But it does seem that in cities that are heavily populated with industrial exposures, especially in places like China, where we've seen this higher incidence of lung cancer, it does make sense that pollution could be a risk factor for lung cancer. Um, Diesel exhaust is also a particular known exposure that could cause people to develop lung cancer. And that might be patients who were railroad workers, miners, potentially truck drivers or toll booth workers. These would be people whose occupation could have set them up for an increased risk of developing lung cancer down the road. As for climate change causing um, lung cancer, there's absolutely nothing that I can find on climate change being associated with lung cancer. It's really about um, industrial exposures and uh, pollution that would be the risk here and nothing that is attributed to change in temperature in in the world
0: a little bit earlier, you mentioned about lung cancer being hereditary. What exactly does that mean? Well, we've known for a long time that patients
1: who develop lung cancer seem to have something that must be genetically causing this for them. There are plenty of people that we'll meet that have smoked 100-pack years of smoking, and they're 90 years old, and they don't have lung cancer. So why do we meet the patient who's six years old, and has smoked less than that and develops lung cancer. There has to be something that's either exposure related or hereditary that does it. Um, Nowadays, we know that there are some mutations that are testable to see if you're going to be at risk for lung cancer. The most common of these mutations is called EGFR, which is Epidermal Growth Factor Receptor Mutation. It's very common to find this in cancer patients who are Asian, female, never smokers, and they develop a specific type of lung cancer called an adenocarcinoma. So we definitely have now genetic mutations that we can test for and that we have drugs for that can specifically target that kind of mutation if you have it.
0: Okay. Well... Let's turn to the common signs and symptoms of lung cancer. Does does it vary with an individual, early stage, later stage? What do we need to know about, uh, about the signs and symptoms of lung cancer?
1: We need to understand that there are a very interesting feature of the lungs, which are there are no pain fibers in the lungs. So the problem with lung cancer and its dismal survival has always been that if you wait until you have symptoms of lung cancer, it's usually more advanced stage cancer and also means it's too late. And unfortunately, that's where a bad bad prognosis comes from. Waiting till it shows up with symptoms is a more advanced stage of cancer. We need to find it when the tumor is small, inside the lung tissue, which has no pain fibers, and that's where it's early stage and a high cure rate. If you wait till patients have symptoms, and the symptoms could be cough or coughing up blood, chest pain because it's eroding into some chest wall or to other place, or you get the global systemic symptoms of Uh, cancer, which is weight loss, fatigue, loss of appetite. Once these other types of symptoms have started to happen, we know we're in trouble. We know we're dealing with something that's more advanced. And unfortunately, in the United States, 80% of our patients that we see as physicians for lung cancer, they're showing up with symptoms and they're waiting until that happens before they come to medical doctors. We need to change that paradigm. We need to change it to patients who are high risk to come see us and be screened and try to find the earliest stage cancers that do not have any symptoms before they've spread and the mortality worsens.
0: What you're talking about is a lung cancer screening, but if they don't have the symptoms, are they likely to get a lung cancer screening? Or when you say that they are at risk, they're at risk just by the fact that they're smoking. So I was kind of curious to find out when should a patient actually seek a lung cancer screening to find out whether or not they have a a cancer?
1: So we need to pick the patients who we know are going to be at highest risk we did studies in the early 1970s and found out that doing chest x-rays on people who were smokers was not helpful. It was not able to detect a difference in survival by doing the chest x-ray on patients. But recently, because of the advanced technology of CAT scans, we found out that if you do CAT scans in people who were high risk because of long-time smoking, that we could find early-stage cancers before they spread, and in 2011, we proved that doing lung cancer screening CT scans on patients who were high-risk smokers could change survival. Twenty percent survival benefit in the National Lung Screening Trial of just doing a CT scan once a year for three years in a row. This was reproduced in studies in the Netherlands where the Nelson study proved that if you did a CAT scan on multiple intervals every year and a half, that they had a significant survival benefit also of 25%. And in women, it may be as high as 40% in that subgroup that they looked at. So who's the patient we're looking for that's the highest risk of developing lung cancer? Well, the biggest group is people who smoke cigarettes. If you smoke more than one pack a day for 20 years, or the equivalent of smoking, if you are age 50 to age 80, and if you are a current smoker or someone who stopped smoking in the last 15 years, you meet criteria for lung cancer screening, doing a CT scan once a year. This is a painless test. It does require about 15 minutes to come in and take the CAT scan. It does not require contrast. And it is a low dose CT scan, which means there is minimal radiation involved with doing a lung cancer screening CT scan. By the way, uh, Cheryl, those numbers of 20% survival benefit are more than we found in our breast cancer screening with mammography, prostate screening with PSAs, and colorectal screening using colonoscopies. So this is a very important screening that we should do for patients who are at risk. And as I said, the patients who are at highest risk are the patients who've done the most smoking.
0: Well, and one thing I also was going to ask you, Dr. Anderson, is, of course, as I was growing up, you also heard or saw more people smoking cigars or pipes And uh, I was curious if there is any uh, statistics available about pipe smokers or cigar smokers as to uh, risk of lung cancer is about the same as cigarette smokers or different?
1: The risk of developing lung cancer is higher uh, for patients who smoke pipes or cigars than somebody who does not smoke. But they don't get the number of Um, insults to the lungs, as you do with cigarettes, they don't usually smoke as many times a day. And you know, pipe smokers really have it mostly in their mouth. So they're at risk for oral cancers more than they are for lung cancers. But the relative risk of increasing your um, developing lung cancer from cigar smoking and from pipe smoking is higher than people who are never smokers. Now, unfortunately, Um, we have just been able to prove that cigarettes, um, are the main risk for lung cancer and that CT screening is effective to change mortality for them. We have not been able to do that on people who have less risk. We haven't even shown it to be effective in people who have less than 20 pack years of smoking. So thinking that this is going to be effective screening for a cigar and Pipe smoking is unlikely to be proven anytime soon. So I cannot recommend lung cancer screening for those patients.
0: So, and and I just wanted to verify, so a lung cancer screening is really the same as a CAT scan. Is that, is that correct?
1: Yes. Uh, lung cancer screening involves doing a CT scan once a year for at least three years and potentially longer, um, The main uh, event for you is to talk about it with your physician um, or provider and discuss the risk of screening and deciding if this is the best thing for you. Um, There are very minimal risks. The risk of radiation, as we said, is very small. Um, The risk of finding a lung nodule is something that we need to talk about because there's potential um, concern if you find something that's not cancer. Uh, But the actual going through the procedure is very easy for patients. They just need to speak with their physician, be scheduled for a CT scan, and then we'll give them a uh, letter back on what their scan shows. And certainly, if there is an abnormality that is suspicious, uh, we'll also help coordinate with you and your doctor to arrange for an appropriate evaluation with a physician who specializes in lung cancer screening.
0: And so the results of that uh, cancer screening are received pretty shortly after the actual test is done. Is, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on which, um, which group of physicians that you're going to see. Our crew uh, generally gives you a response back within 24 hours. And we also send a letter to your physician who ordered the test to make sure that they know the result as well. Um, The other thing you find out on screening with a CT scan of your chest, that there's potentially finding other things hidden in the chest that you didn't know about. I frequently see patients who have coronary calcification scores, which means the coronary arteries sometimes have calcium in them, which uh, predisposes you to a risk for heart disease. Sometimes we find breast nodules in patients who didn't know that they had a potential breast cancer, and sometimes we find lymph nodes in the middle of the chest suggestive of other inflammatory diseases that also need evaluation. In the National Lung Screening Trial, there was 6% of patients that were found to have an all-cause mortality benefit because they found other diseases that were uh, seen on the CT scan that the patients did not know they had. So it turns out doing a CAT scan of your chest, at least in patients who are heavy smokers, can be very beneficial to you for more than one reason.
0: Okay, well, we're gonna talk more about what happens and next steps if a lung nodule is found in the second half of the program, but we're gonna take a short break right now. In case you tuned in late, We're talking with Dr. Eric Anderson, the Director of Interventional Pulmonology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, and he's also a professor of clinical medicine at Georgetown University. And you are listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington. We'll be right back.
1: Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging Life Care Professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An Aging Life Care Professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org.
0: Welcome back. We are talking about lung cancer today with Dr. Eric Anderson, Director of Interventional Pulmonology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And we got to the point where we have now, if a patient had a lung cancer screening, uh, what would be the next steps? So Dr. Anderson, help us on this. Uh, If a lung nodule would be found on a screening, what would be what you and your um, fellow physicians and other healthcare providers, what, what, what would you do?
1: Well, this is a common problem uh, that we have to talk about. We have in 25% of the patients in New York lung cancer screening studies found to have a lung nodule. In about 67% of the patients who were in the Mayo Clinic lung cancer screening trials were also found to have lung nodules. Here at Georgetown, our screening program is finding about 60% of the patients who have a CT scan done are found to have lung nodules. Now, not all those patients have lung cancer. It turns out about 2% of patients who are found to have a lung nodule on their screening CT scan will be determined to have lung cancer. That means 98% of those lung nodules that we find are not cancer. That makes our job trying to figure out which one is cancer and which one is benign. That's the trick of what we do as an interventional pulmonology. So we need to see patients who have nodules that are bigger, nodules that look more suspicious. um, And certainly the majority of these nodules that are not cancer are things that are usually due to um, things we inhale, such as fungus. Fungus is ubiquitous, meaning it's in the environment around us. And we inhale it every day and it forms small spots in the lung as our body tries to handle an irritant that it inhales. So part of our job as the physicians is try to figure out which one is the cancer nodule and which ones are the benign nodules.
0: Is the next step also a part of doing that diagnosis? then? And and are there certain procedures that are conducted? And how do you determine which would be the the best procedure to to diagnose, whether it would be a lung cancer or it's a benign uh, nodule? One of the most important
1: parts of selecting out which one's going to be cancer is size. It turns out that most tiny little nodules, which is the majority of the nodules that we find, less than six millimeters, Are likely to be benign and the patient doesn't need to do anything until the next CT scan 12 months later. In patients who have nodules a little bit bigger, 6 to 8 millimeters, they may need to have a CAT scan a little bit sooner in 6 months. And in patients who have nodules that are 8 millimeters and larger, then we have to think about whether or not it might be cancer and we may need to do something more. What does that mean? Well, it could mean we follow up the CT scan for them in three months, understanding that if it's a cancer, it could grow during that time. The average doubling time for a lung cancer, meaning how long before it gets to twice the size it is, is about three months. So one option is a follow-up CAT scan. Another option is that we do a PET scan, a PET scan. This is a test where we inject you with a sugar that is trackable in a nuclear medicine test, meaning we inject you, you sit around for about two and a half hours, and then we put you on a scanner It looks just like a CT scan, and it checks to see where in your body extra sugar is eaten in excess. It turns out that lung cancers have the ability to eat more sugar than other cells, so they light up on these PET scans. The PET scan is helpful for telling us about the nodule It also does check from about your jaw all the way down to your mid thigh to make sure there are no other surprises or spread of cancer anywhere else. So PET scan is pretty good. It's about 90% accurate at finding cancer. That means that 10% of the time it can't find it does not light up and it's still a cancer and about 85% chance that it is proven to be cancer if it's positive. So that means if your PET scan shows the nodule lights up and is suspicious for cancer, it's about an 85% uh, proof that that's indeed going to be a cancer. So PET scan is non-invasive, only requires the IV, but it does take a little bit longer to get the images done. And then what do we do about the patients who have suspicious nodules? The other option is to biopsy them. The most common biopsy that we do during um, evaluation of a lung nodule is something called bronchoscopy. Most people have heard about colonoscopy, where a camera goes up the backside. Bronchoscopy is actually a camera that goes down inside your airway. The bronchoscope is a small camera about the size of a pen or pencil, and it's hooked up to video screens so we can see where to go. Uh, we are able to use a special type of bronchoscope called endobronchial ultrasound and endobronchial ultrasound means there's an ultrasound on the end of the camera that lets me see through the walls of the large airways to see lymph nodes. It's very important when we're evaluating somebody for a lung nodule to see if they have lung cancer, not just to biopsy the nodule, but also to sample any and all the lymph nodes that we can find in the middle of the chest. Lymph nodes are typically located along the largest airways. So doing endobronchial ultrasound is a real-time way of seeing these lymph nodes beside the airway and sampling them with a small needle at the same time. It's very accurate, around 90 to 95% chance I can tell you about each of the lymph nodes in the middle of the chest. Do they have cancer in them? or are they normal lymph nodes? We have a special uh, type of bronchoscope here at Georgetown uh, that we use for biopsying small nodules in the periphery. In the past, um, bronchoscopes were limited because they can only go out to the larger airways. And as you can imagine, the airways get smaller and smaller the further you go out. So we were never able to stick a camera all the way out to a small peripheral target. We now have the ION robot here at Georgetown where we can place a robot bronchoscope down through the airway, out to the periphery, using a pre-planned pathway created by the CT scan that we do ahead of time. That allows us to more accurately reach the target, and then it stays fixed, pointed at the target. We pass needles and biopsy forceps through it, to take small pieces of the lung, which we can then analyze to see if this is a lung cancer or if this might be something that is benign, like one of the nodules I said might've been due to fungus or the other. Um, Doing bronchoscopy is an outpatient procedure. It is um, done completely asleep with general anesthesia for this type of bronchoscopy and you're in the hospital for a total time about five hours, but the procedure itself is only about an hour and a half. And because the lungs do not have pain fibers in them, there is no pain associated with bronchoscopy. There is a small risk of collapse of lung. The lung is like a balloon filled with blood vessels. So it is possible that the balloon gets punctured by doing these types of biopsies. That is a fixable problem But it is um, less common to have a collapsed lung from the inside type biopsy by bronchoscopy than if we did the alternative approach, which is to stick a needle in from the outside to biopsy one of these small nodules.
0: One feature that, uh, as you're talking about the diagnosis now, and based on this diagnosis, would be determining what the treatment is going to be for your patient. I understand that Georgetown offers a, a multidisciplinary approach to the treatment for lung cancer patients. Tell us more about that.
1: It's important that lung cancer is respected as a very dangerous type of cancer. It needs the input from all of our team members. At MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, we have a multidisciplinary clinic where we have patients who are newly diagnosed with lung cancer. They come and they meet at the same time in one clinic a visit, the medical oncologist who specializes in lung cancer, the radiation oncologist who specializes in lung cancer, the thoracic surgeon, and the interventional pulmonologist. During that one meeting, we can come up with a complete strategy of how we're going to treat this individual patient. It may be if it's only an early stage lung cancer that it's going to be surgery alone, but if it involves lymph nodes in the middle of the chest, it's going to need drug therapy. And if it is a more advanced problem where it has spread outside the chest, it may be only a drug problem. There also may be a need for radiation um, to treat patients who have lymph node involvement in the middle of the chest. So having a group of physicians come and talk to you all at once about what the plan is, is very important. If you've ever sat on the other side of that table where you're getting bad news about a diagnosis of cancer, you really want a group of people that are gonna respond quickly and are gonna give you the best plan immediately without having to go to four different visits to figure out a plan.
0: And I would imagine, too, that not only is it helpful for the patient and his or her family, uh, but it also helps in terms of the physicians hearing each other talk and understanding as they evaluate the patient's condition that it's, it's really a, a coming together of figuring out what the best uh, solution is. Would you agree?
1: It absolutely is important to have everybody on the same track of what the plan's going to be, especially in patients who have more regionally advanced disease involving the lymph nodes. If you start having lymph node involvement, you need to have a plan that's coordinated well between your medical oncologist, your surgeon, and your radiation oncologist, because you're probably going to need all therapies over a six-month time frame. And during that entire thing, you need to have people who are working together to figure out the best plan. In some of these meetings, we'll go around the circle talking to each person, and then we'll go back around the circle because things might change because the radiation guy may say we need something else from the surgeon. What other information do we need from the medical oncologist, for example? We also have a a weekly tumor board, which is a group of 25 physicians. We are all from these different disciplines where we present cases and talk about the imaging, review the pathology, and come up with the strategy and a, recommendations for the person, uh, the individual patient.
0: So if lung cancer uh, surgery is the, the best option, or let me say, since that is an option, how do you determine the best candidates? What's the next step?
1: the other factors that matter are the patient's other comorbidities, how old the patient is, are they going to be able to tolerate the therapies that we're talking about? And because many of these patients have smoked quite a bit of cigarettes, we're going to have to decide, do they have really bad emphysema? Are they going to be able to tolerate these treatments? For example, surgical resection, taking out part of your lung, do you have enough lung function to be able to withstand such a surgery like that? So it is important to evaluate everything about their comorbidities, but it's also important on staging. And staging means where has this cancer spread? Is it a single spot of cancer? If it is a single spot of cancer in the lung, it's going to be surgery alone or possibly radiation with stereotactic body radiation therapy, CyberKnife. If it has spread to lymph nodes, on the same side, it may be surgery with drugs afterwards. If it's stage to stage three, where there are lymph nodes in the middle of the chest involved, then it may be a multimodality approach here where it's going to be drugs, surgery, and possibly radiation at the end. But if the patient has too many other illnesses, it might just be drugs and radiation combined. And then if it is spread outside the chest, The treatment's completely different, it may be just drugs and no surgery, no radiation. So staging means everything. And nowadays, we need to know what genetic mutations does your cancer have, because that may help us select the drugs that we choose.
0: And for the lung cancer surgery, describe just briefly, what are the the procedures that are currently performed?
1: If your cancer is localized to a single spot in the lung, then doing a removal of the cancer by a robotic video-assisted thoracic surgery is the best way to go about this. Here at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, we have the Da Vinci robot system, which allows the thoracic surgeon to make small holes in the side of the chest, five of them, through which small cameras are placed inside, and care is done to remove all the lymph nodes in the middle of the chest, and then to remove the lobe where the cancer is. There are three lobes on the right side, and there's two lobes on the left. So if you happen to have a cancer on the right side, you're going to lose about a third of your lung. If you have a cancer on the left, you're going to have a half your lung taken out. So these are big surgeries, but they are much faster in recovery than we had even a few years ago because of the smaller incisions that are now used by the thoracic surgeon.
0: And you mentioned a a little earlier about radiation therapy. If surgery isn't the best option, uh, what types of radiation therapy are used to treat lung cancer?
1: So in 2004, uh, we had the privilege of having the first CyberKnife radiation system um, here on the East Coast. Uh, We were the fifth in the world to have it and the 50th to have a second one. Um, There are only 250 in in the world. And these machines, we saw an immediate option for treating lung cancer with. It is a radiation tool that is used to have a pencil thin beam of radiation aimed at a target. And instead of shooting it from just one direction, like we do with conventional radiation. It is shot from on average for a lung cancer, about 150 different directions through the patient, which means only once through the skin in one spot, once through another spot, but all these different pencil thin beams hit the target. Because this is so well tolerated, you're able to do treatments in three to five treatments spread out over one week to 10 days. And that would be the only treatment that you might have for a small lung cancer, as long as it has not spread to any lymph nodes. The success with using CyberKnife for this type of treatment for a stage one lung cancer is very good with a 90% chance we can eliminate that single spot. The benefit of course, of doing radiation with this type of technique is that there's no pain involved. Unless the tumor is right near the surface of the chest wall, this treatment can be done without any discomfort in just three to five treatments that last about an hour long. Um, That is one form of radiation that would be ideal for a patient who cannot have surgery for treatment of a early stage lung cancer. If you have cancer spread to the lymph nodes in the middle of the chest, you're probably going to need radiation therapy. There is multiple forms of conventional radiation that are available. IMRT is the type of radiation that's most commonly used uh, for radiation with several different beams to treat the lymph nodes in the middle of the chest. But the most uh, recent advance we've had is the use of proton beam therapy for uh, treatment of lung cancer. Proton therapy is different than conventional radiation, which was a beam that goes through you, comes out the other side and hits the wall. Proton therapy is different because the positively charged particles will come through, hit the target and not go any further. And this becomes an advantage in treating most patients because you can have the beam go in and it does not damage things beyond the target. So you're taking away at least half the usual damage that was done with conventional radiation. The best candidate for a proton therapy Uh, patient with lung cancer is somebody who has stage three lung cancer and needs their lymph nodes treated in a more comprehensive fashion. Um, And we're using it more in younger people who we really want to try and spare their damage to the area involved. Um, Another type of chest tumor called a thymoma would be an ideal candidate for proton radiation.
0: And I also understand, in addition to what you've already described of, of radiation, is there's also the possibility of chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and targeted therapy. Can you give us a brief discussion of what the difference is between those
1: therapies? I now call it drug therapy. And people always say, you mean chemotherapy? And I say, no, drug therapy. You're going to need drug treatments, but I'm not going to be the one to choose this for you. It's going to be the medical oncologist who now gets to determine which drugs you're going to need. If you're a stage one cancer, you're not going to need any drug treatments. But if you have lymph nodes involvement, or you have tumor that has spread outside the chest to other places, you're going to need some form of drug treatment. We know there are multiple chemotherapeutic drugs that work for lung cancer, and we know how people have side effects from that. For the most part, People who get chemotherapy nowadays don't have severe nausea, but they might lose their hair. They certainly will get fatigue, especially the more courses of chemotherapy we go into it. The big advances in lung cancer that we need to talk about are targeted therapies, which mean if we check the mutation that caused your cancer, we can find a genetic mutation that we might have a drug for. These drugs may be pills. And they may have much different side effects than chemotherapy. They're easier to tolerate some form like an acne like rash with diarrhea. Um, They're a pill that you take and they work better than chemotherapy. So if you have lung cancer, we want you to have a mutation because if you have a mutation that we have a drug for, you can have a very good outcome from these types of treatments. The other thing that's revolutionized lung cancer treatment, is immunotherapy. You've even seen commercials now during the Super Bowl for immunotherapy. Well this is our Super Bowl strategy. You take a drug that revs up your immune system that fights off cancer. By doing these type of therapies, they're usually done every three to four weeks. You take one infusion. They are usually intravenous. They rev up your immune system to fight the cancer and they're usually very well tolerated without much side effect. The downstream of doing immunotherapy is that in your lifetime, you will always have had immunotherapy. You might have inflammation occur in other organs. But the biggest benefit has been the survival. Patients with immunotherapy who respond to these drugs now is making it look like lung cancer might be a, a more of a chronic disease than a fatal disease. If you have a good response to immunotherapy, you may be the person that stays on immunotherapy for at least a year or maybe even lifelong. The studies are ongoing for that, but the overall cancer rate for the United States just improved survival by 2% across the board, mostly because of the benefits of immunotherapy and treating cancer and specifically, improving the survival of lung cancer patients.
0: Well, we're getting close to the end, but I want to hear uh, some comments from you both about uh, a smoking cessation program and where it's conducted and qualifications to participate. And in addition, I want you to also um, give your thoughts about vaping and marijuana, since we're hearing more about those uh possibilities and find out whether or not they're uh, causes of of lung cancer. So talk about smoking cessation first and then vaping and marijuana.
1: Critical. We got to get people to stop smoking. We got to do whatever we can to do it. It's, I am the end of the line. If you get to me and we're talking about a lung nodule or lung cancer, it's time to stop. I will do whatever I can do to get you into a smoking cessation program. We can use medications to help stop smoking these medications are usually very well tolerated, and we can get you into uh, participation with our counselors. that can also offer a combination between the drugs and counseling to help us quit smoking. Your audience can dial 1-800-QUIT-NOW and get somebody on the line to help you, even without coming to a doctor's office. Um, it needs to be part of our lung cancer screening program. If you're going to come see me and see if I'm a good candidate for lung cancer screening, then we also need to talk about your smoking cessation, because we know that stopping smoking is going to be a thing that's going to lessen your risk of developing lung cancer. It's the total years and number of packs that you smoke that gets you into into trouble. So we want to try to reduce that as much as we can. Uh, We also know that if you stop smoking, once you've already developed lung cancer, the survival is better. So there are major reasons to stop smoking even after you've been diagnosed with cancer. As for vaping and marijuana, we have entered a whole new strategy by our cigarette manufacturers of trying to get young people to be enticed to start smoking. And the way they're doing this is by getting bubblegum-flavored electronic cigarettes um, and saying that this is cool, Just watching this beautiful plume of of steam come rising up is fascinating for high school students who are trying to experiment with medications and drugs. Um, The downside of vaping, as we know, is there are some local reactions that can cause terrible lung injury to unfortunate patients. That's usually in combination with the ones that are used with marijuana. But um, most important association is patients who start vaping will find it's cheaper to smoke cigarettes. And there's been a switch from people vaping to cigarette use. Unfortunately, this is why our numbers in young people of cigarettes are starting to rise. As for marijuana, people ask this to us all the time. It must be safe because there's no studies that show that it causes cancer. Well, that's because in the past it was illegal and you couldn't do a study because you'd be arrested. So now we're down to the fact of burning plants and inhaling them. Does that seem like a good idea? Um, Yes, marijuana is not as many cigarettes per day um, that people ingest, but we can strongly suspect that if we do the studies for marijuana, it too will be a cause of lung cancer. It's just a matter of time now that we have it legalized in many districts so that we can prove that this is just as bad a thing as cigarette smoking. Pretty much not a great idea to light up a plant and put it in your mouth.
0: Good advice. So last question, Dr. Anderson Best resources to learn more about lung cancer treatment and prevention?
1: The best resource is probably the American Cancer Society. Um, Their website is cancer.org, and that is the site where you can see all the statistics and hear about all the latest treatments for sure. Uh, My favorite local group is the Lung Cancer Alliance. They are based out of Arlington, Virginia, and they have uh, very good resources on uh, lung cancer screening and smoking cessation all these things that we want to do to promote best health in our patients.
0: Okay. Well, I want to thank Dr. Eric Anderson, Director of Interventional Pulmonology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, for joining me today. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit agingmattersonline.com. And there you can access all Aging Matters radio and TV show content. And of course, you can check out the Aging Matters podcast on Apple and Spotify. So be sure and visit that site. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. To learn more about that company, visit inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.